042 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we discuss X-Files, Season 1, Episode 16, Young at Heart. This seems to be another Monster of the Week episode of the X-Files, where you have a different threat coming in just for a one-time appearance and taking off, although it does lay a little bit of groundwork for the future, even some that's easy to miss. The original air date was February 11th, 1994, and the IMDb user score is 7.4 out of 10. The episode was directed by Michael Lang. If you look him up on the IMDb, you'll see he's got quite a few directorial credits. He's on Greek, Dropped at Diva, One Tree Hill, Brothers and Sisters, The O.C., Psych, Point Pleasant, Mismatch, Dawson's Creek, Roswell, Titans, Angel, Beverly Hills 90210, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Pretender. He's got a pretty sizable resume. Now, in the end, he only does four episodes of The X-Files, two in this first season, and this is the first of them. The writer, Scott Kelfer, also has a fair number of credits to his name. This is the only X-Files credit that he has, and I suspect that was due to dissatisfaction with the work. The final product is actually quite good, but one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that there are some very specific conventions to how to credit people in TV and movies as laid out by the union so we could see exactly what there was. One of those is the use of the word and versus the symbol of an ampersand when two or more people are being credited on a particular project. So, for example, when we see Morgan and Wong co-writing or Ganza and Gordon co-writing in their teamwork, an ampersand is used. The ampersand is reserved for people writing on a team. The writing credits for Young at Heart do not use the ampersand. They use the word and, specifically Scott Kalfer and Chris Carter. Now, when you spell out the word and, that says they both worked on it, but they worked individually. And the name that appears last is the name that did the most recent draft of the script. So the way these credits are formatted, what this says is that Scott Calfer turned in a script and then Chris Carter rewrote it without Calfer's input. The episode starts with a flashback to Pennsylvania in 1989, where we see a doctor doing some sort of procedure to a prison inmate. And he's reported the prisoner dead, even though the prisoner is blinking on the table and his right arm is missing. After the credits, we cut to, again, the first appearance of Mulder and Scully as they come to a crime scene. They're called to the crime scene by Reggie Perdue, who is Mulder's old ASAC. So this has all the hallmarks, including the notes, of the first man that Mulder profiled and caught in his work at the FBI, a man named John Barnett, who was the victim on the doctor's table in the teaser. Now, it's been reported that John Barnett died four years earlier. The audience has already had reason to question that report, but what we know is that for the bulk of the episode, which again takes place in Maryland, Barnett is gunning for Mulder, which again explains why they're still working in Maryland. This isn't just a random instance, this is the victim coming to him. And we actually get a very good look at Mulder's background, and that, I think, is one of the elements of the episode that works best. The basic idea is that these experiments have changed Barnett. Not only is he alive, but he's somehow eluding capture, he's somehow acting and working in a way where he's not leaving fingerprints from his right hand, although we do get a couple fingerprints from his left. We also find out that the doctor who worked on him at prison was not a certified doctor and hadn't been for years, which to me begs the question, why was he working in the government prison? That's someone answered later, but I'm not sure I'm completely satisfied with that answer. Ultimately, what we have here is a game of cat and mouse where Mulder's the mouse. So Barnett was robbing a bunch of armored cars, Mulder was the one that helped put them on the track to do it, but this was Mulder's first assignment. He was playing it absolutely by the book. He had a clean shot to take Barnett down, but regulations say not to do so. As a result, Barnett had the opportunity to kill two people, and he took it, one of whom was an agent, one of whom was his own accomplice. 
We get some of this through exposition, some of this through flashback, but the information is there, and we can see that this is still bugging Mulder to this day. The agent who was shot had a wife and two kids, and in the course of conversation, we see Mulder has immediate knowledge at his fingertips of what those kids are up to today, so he has been keeping track of the family. It has been bugging him. He even goes to watch the football games that one of his kids plays in, and he regrets the fact that the agent isn't there to see it, and he keeps kicking himself, saying he should have taken the shot, he should have taken the shot. As we go through the episode, one of the more suspense scenes that we see starts off as we did very often earlier in the season with Scully at her computer in her apartment, writing up her reports in front of that familiar word perfect blue screen, back when blue screens were not automatically a bad thing. And she would grab her pistol because she heard someone there. Turns out it was the doctor who did the experiments on Barnett, and he was the one that finally justified Mulder's belief that Barnett was alive. There'd been some rumors, but most people were thinking copycat or something along those lines. But we find out that Barnett has not only escaped, he's survived the procedure that made him younger, as a result of the doctor's research, he was actually able to get a limb grafted on. So his right arm was actually grafted from salamander cells, which is why the audience already knew it looked weird. But I mean, again, we haven't had a clear look at Barnett's face. And it's not until later when we find out that Barnett was listening to Scully's answer machine messages and found out where Scully's going to be. And in that final confrontation, this is where we finally see his face. And he is much younger. He looks like a man in his 20s. One of the really nice touches I found in this episode is in the final confrontation, Muller's in the same position again. Barnett has a hostage, he's got a gun to her head. Going by the book, Mulder should not fire, but Barnett has already proven he is perfectly willing to fire and then go down in the shootout. He doesn't seem to care about that. So there's a scene where there's a close-up of Mulder as Mulder takes the shot that puts Barnett down. One of the nice touches is that the rest of the world is gone. So at this point, Mulder is in an orchestra performance hall for Scully's cellist friend, who must be pretty amazing cellist, because this is a massive hall for a solo cello act to sell out. But he's there alone. We've seen this. There's the red upholstery in the background. We see this in most of the shots of Mulder. But when he makes the decision to pull the trigger, and we see him pull it back and take Barnett down, they had to film it somewhere else. The background is completely black. They have isolated Mulder. Mulder is the only thing in this world, which again, I thought was a very nice touch. So this one, again, it's Monster of the Week, but it's a fairly suspenseful Monster of the Week, and one that was put together pretty well. You know, we see the way others are reacting. There's a lot of nice details. For example, Reggie gets woken up by the phone ringing. He's not just like most shows where he's just a guy lying in bed. He's asleep. You just wake him up. They actually had him wake up with his glasses askew and an open open book on his chest. So he's one of the people who falls asleep as he's reading, which again, it's a little detail and humanizes a lot of the characters. So that is ultimately what we see here. Watching carefully, one might notice that there is an unusual guest star in this episode. Towards the end, after John Barnett has been shot and is lying on the operating table, there is a man that Mulder identifies as probably CIA, and he's trying to get the information from Barnett about where the research has been hidden so that they can continue the de-aging experiments. This man is actually William B. Davis, the cigarette-smoking man who hasn't been seen since the pilot. So that's being laid in here. We won't see him again for a while, but we will see him again. Now, our next episode in two weeks' time is one that establishes a huge part of the X-Files lore really develops the supporting characters in a somewhat accidental and unexpected way. So join us again in two weeks for a discussion of EBE. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.